0: This is
1: hell. So I have two guesses for the musician, musicians who are playing, the music that we were playing right before we went on air, Dan. I don't know who it was, but my guesses are going to be either the Shags or Shonen Knife.
0: You're at a distinct disadvantage because <sighs> it's the fall, but then the lady started singing. Oh. So it's, a, it's kind of a curveball.
1: So we do not hear Mr. Smith at that point.
0: Well, not before you put your headphones on. No, sorry. I feel like I've tricked
1: you. That was a very good trick, though. Uh, The planet's on fire. So, yes, (laughs) this is hell. Certainly a contributor to our burning planet is the fossil fuel producers themselves. That's why so many protests and climate actions around the world focused on sites of production, which we've seen, for instance, across Canada. Overlooked until recently is the role that not only consumption plays in climate change, but wasteful burning of fossil fuels by the super wealthy and what can be called their luxury emissions, luxury carbon, caused specifically while cruising around the world in their private jets. The problem isn't just their profligate use of these carbon-spewing jets, but how celebrities in the media make their lifestyle of the rich and famous the goal that everyone should want to achieve. Our desires are taken hostage by those who could not care less about the planet, and for that matter, those who live on it, and will try to live on it for generations to come. They don't care about any of those people. Or things. Luckily of late, some activists and climate action groups have aimed their protests strategically at those private jets and those who use them. And our guest today sees this as a successful protest strategy. And in a few moments, we will have the return of Christopher Ketchum, who co-wrote The Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions, should be at the center of climate revolt. Climate disorder won't be remedied through an orderly march of green energy. The world must also reign in consumption. Christopher co-wrote the story with Charles Komanoff. Christopher is a freelance journalist and author of the 2020 book, 2020 book, This Land, How Cowboys, capitalism, and corruption are ruining the American West. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at C. Wild. That's K-E-T-C-H-A-M, C. Wild. Christopher writes at christophercatcham.com for his journalism nonprofit, Denatured. Christopher was on our show way back in 2015 to talk about his then-just-published Harper's article, The Great Republican Land Heist. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Meritz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how are you? Anything new about you?
0: Doing good. My partner's been out of town, so I've been eating bachelor chow.
1: Oh, so what kind of bachelor chow did you get? Did you get ch- chicken or beef?
0: I just eat spaghetti like six days in a row. I don't care. <laughs> Straight out of the can? Yeah, well, it feels good, <laughs> you know. I'm saving time. It's efficient. It's efficient. Fordism, so it's Fordism. Yeah. Fordism on a plate. Yeah. So uh, where? So where's your uh, wife at this time? She's down in Atlanta, Atlanta, GA, visiting a lot of good friends. That's where we met. Oh, really? Yeah, we met in Atlanta. I was working at a bike shop.
1: So is she going to be in contact with the uh, forest defenders down there? She is in contact with several forest defenders. Yes. All right. Well, we should definitely get in contact with her to see if she can help us book a guest for that topic, because yep. it's something that people have been talking about a lot, and you and I have been trying to get people on the show to discuss.
0: Yeah, it's huge. It's become a worldwide movement.
1: Do you want to tell people a little bit about it right now? Well, well? the
0: cops down in Atlanta, they want to uh, plow over this forest. It's the last little bit of forest that Atlanta has so that they can build like a cop training center, and people with good heads on their shoulders say, that doesn't sound that good, and they've occupied the forest, and they're living in the forest, and they're defending the forest from the cops.
1: A lot. Like it's been w- like a year. What A lot like what happened here in Chicago with the police training center in uh, West Garfield Park.
0: Yeah, there's connections. All over the world, people are looking to Atlanta for this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, because uh, unfortunately, too many uh, cities are taking uh, vacant land in uh, poor neighborhoods and turning them into police training stations, which is very...
0: I heard about that on a cool documentary. They were showing up at Northwestern. It was called You Have to Make a Distinction. The filmmakers were in... in uh, They were there, and it was excellent. So go dial that up. We have to make a distinction. All right.
1: Uh, So there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes here on This Is Hell. As I mentioned earlier this week, real-life historian and show producer in his alternative life, Sebastian Voper, Ph.D., who does the past inside the present segment, connecting contemporary events with those that took place in the past, uh, Sebastian is moving across Lake Michigan to Grand Rapids, Michigan for family reasons, which means he will not be able to be physically present here during shows, so he will no longer run the board during This Is Hell. Senior producer Alex Jerry was supposed to have left the show last March, in March of 2022, again for family reasons, but stuck around when I had a health crisis last year, and along with Sebastian, Dan Hill, Lindsay Gorey, and Richard Norwood, they made certain the show could continue, and I cannot thank them enough. Freaking family reasons. I know it sounds ominous, or it sounds like the kind of BS excuse a professional athlete makes after being busted doing something awful. But, but seriously, they both, Alex and Sebastian, have better opportunities for their families, and they're wisely taking those opportunities. With Sebastian leaving in only a couple of weeks and staff that could not make it home for the holidays because of the massive blizzard now wanting to visit their families, we are looking for new board operators. To run the board, you must obviously physically be here, at least One day of the week, Monday through Thursday, from 9.30 in the morning until approximately noon. As a producer, you will offer guest and topic ideas, be in charge of sound quality during the show, connect with guests, put them on air, contribute throughout the show, do some live reads, then edit the show if necessary, post it online, and share it on social media. If you do join the staff, you also get access to a professional sound studio for your own projects if you want to work on your music or you have your own podcast idea. If you'd like to produce This Is Hell, email us at, chuck at this is hellcom We also have remote work available if you are interested in helping us with our website. Again, that's chuck at this is hellcom Remember, here at This Is Hell, we fight 415 if you know what i mean and we're winning that fight again if you are interested in becoming a part of the this is hell crew email me at chuck at this is dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience
0: this week's question from hell is what have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway
1: do you have an answer to this week's question from hell
0: Uh, I keep trying to enjoy the movie Stalker by Andre Tarkovsky, and it's a snooze fest every time I watch it. (laughs) I feel like an idiot because I know real smart guys are supposed to like this movie.
1: Isn't Uh, that the guy who did the uh, science fiction movie about the sun? Yeah, he did the original Solaris before
0: Steven Spielberg took a crack at it.
1: And that wasn't that good.
0: I kind of liked it. But the original
1: one, I mean, was good. The second one, I wasn't too crazy. Well, that's
0: about. what I'm saying. I know you're supposed to like them, but I think it's because they're all about the Russian soul, and I just don't get it. There's no humor in it. They're very dour people. <laughs> it seems like that. I don't know, but I kind of like the Soderbergh one. I guess that makes me an inert cultural Wait, bystander. Was that George? Clooney? It's with George Clooney, yeah. goofy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question From hell wins your choice of whatever This is hell swag you want The this is hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face mask The uh, face covering The coffee mug the truckers cap the winter beanie as well as the this Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our merch right now by going to this is and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support for some stupid reason we thought that our business model should revolve around being a meritocracy and a that was a mistake. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us during today's show at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff, Influences the influencers Or does his best to do so Coming up, Dan will be sharing More of your answers to this week's Question from Hell We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast Exclusively for subscribers At patreon.com slash Hell. Jeff will be delivering his moment of truth As I was saying earlier And we will tell you what's happening next week here on This is Hell Noam Chomsky called This is Hell sanity in talk radio So clearly and very sadly, gnomes has gone insane. This is how you will be surprised at how much the super wealthy contribute to greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. I mean, I know you think it's a lot, but it's a lot more than I thought, at least. And I thought it was a lot, too. Get this, as today's guest tells us, the world's richest 10% account for 50% of fossil fuel burning and carbons emissions. Half the emissions are caused by 1 in 10 people. It takes 90% of us to make up for the emissions of that 10%. We make The other 90% make as many carbon emissions as the top 10%. And somehow they've convinced all of us that we want to be able to jet set just like them and burn our own luxury emissions, flying over a world that suffers for our own selfish indulgences. Here to talk about climate action, global warming, and the role of the super wealthy. Returning to This is Hell, journalist Christopher Ketchum, who co-wrote the Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions, should be at the center of climate revolt. Climate disorder won't be Remedied through an orderly march of green energy The world must also rein in consumption Christopher co-wrote the story with Charles Komanoff Welcome back to This Is Hell, Christopher
2: Yeah, hey, how you doing?
1: Good, it's been far, far, far too long since we've had you on the show So I really appreciate you being back on And this is a topic that isn't being discussed Why do you think personal consumption is not being as I mean, we hear about like, you know Consumer action when it comes to oh, you should use a cloth bag when you go grocery shopping. But other than that, why isn't consumption directly being? Why hasn't consumption being directly confronted prior to the most recent actions?
2: Um, because it is a third rail of American. Let's just talk about American politics, right? Um, in America, we are entitled. We believe ourselves to be entitled with um, an incredible ray of of energetic and consumption privileges and um, to ask the American consumer to sacrifice in that manner is an affront to the American dream. So instead of um, basically laying laying it on the lawn with Americans and saying, hey, look, you know, if you want to have a sustainable society, you're going to have to cut down on travel and consumption of all sorts of things and consumption of all sorts of foods And um, and you're going to have to drive less and you're going to have what will perceive to be less freedom, really, because energy does equal freedom in a in a, a, you know, a a dynamic techno industrial society. Um, Well, people don't want that. People have been people, American citizens have been um, have been uh, brainwashed, propagandized to believe that their right is uh, one of constantly rising affluence. And um, of course, now that pathological worldview has been exported worldwide. So for example, the rising middle classes in China are also seeking the same path of of, uh, affluence. And, um, you know, the the effect of all this is going to be catastrophic in the long term in terms of uh, the totality of carbon emissions. Um, And, um, you know, Nothing's being done. Carbon emissions continue to rise inexorably. The total ecological footprint of the developed world uh, continues to rise. The total material throughputs continues to rise. The catastrophic effects on wildlife and ecosystems worldwide continue to be uh, felt and are getting worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, I was prompted to write that article with uh, with my buddy Kaminov because here are protesters who are you know who are they broke into Schiphol airport uh in the netherlands and basically occupied the tarmac where um luxury jets private jet uh, jets were um either waiting to take off or just uh, housed and um basically shut down the airport or shut down that part of the airport where you have uh, uh you know um uh, uh, Luxury, uh, luxury, high-end um, private jet travel. So, you know, when you when when I describe it in that sense, like, all right, so they stopped a couple of jets for a day, big deal, and it's true, it's not a big deal. It's uh, it's a drop in the bucket of what needs to happen, but it's a good start. So, um, so kudos to them. I mean, I think what, you know, I, I quote a guy, an eco-saboteur, who, um, who I'm profiling for Harper's Magazine, because I was actually living with this. Eco- I was living in a cabin in the New Mexico wilderness with this dude while I was writing this article. And um, and uh, so I showed it to him, and he, he goes, he's a Texan, he says, well, hell, man, they should have just destroyed the airplanes and then go to the manufacturers and destroy the airplane manufacturers. And, well, I'm sorry to say, but he's right. Because stopping some luxury jets for one day ain't going gonna, ain't gonna to do the trick. Maybe, and you know what, maybe destroying the airplanes on the tarmac and then destroying the airplane manufacturer's capability to make the airplanes won't do anything either. But you, you got to start somewhere because we are, we, are we are in a hell of a bond ecologically
1: but this this kind of action has happened in the past when it comes to I was just thinking about this as you were saying of uh, you know destroying the airplanes um Uh, the attacks that happened in I believe it was in Colorado against SUV dealerships and blowing up SUVs. But people just took that as an act of uh, vandalism. And then people conflate vandalism with violence. And so they look at it as an act of violence. Why do you think that kind of strategy would work when it comes to private jets if people had such a really negative reaction to the burning of just some
2: SUVs in a a parking lot? I, I don't. I have no idea whether it will work. I'm saying that all things should be all all options should be on the table. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm all in favor of destroying uh, SUVs. Um, And these are not acts of violence. An act of violence is um, is force perpetrated against living beings. That's violence. When you destroy a piece of property, to me, it's not violence. It's sabotage. It's property destruction. Um, But it's not violence.
1: You mentioned how uh, when it comes to consumption, it's the third rail of American politics, which was actually the exact same words I was going to ask you if it was a third rail. But but why under neoliberalism, when everything is about uh, personal responsibility, why is consumption a third rail or is consumption just a third rail when it comes – To the wealthy, because even when there's uh, problems in public schools, even President Obama said, you know, this is an issue with the family. The family needs to do something about their kids' education. It was never something about how the system might be falling short and that it might, you know, we need more help for these kids. It was always about personal responsibility. So, why does consumption get to avoid that, you know, personal responsibility critique that is so embedded throughout neoliberalism? Is it just that this this is personal responsibility and consumption when it comes to the very wealthy?
2: Yeah, well, remember something, you know, the the under neoliberalism, the, 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 the poor, the working class, um, the lower middle classes, they all have to practice personal responsibility, you see, but corporations and the wealthy who are served by corporations and the wealthy who are subsidized by government in collusion with corporations not so much personal responsibility right so um i think we're just looking at the the hypocrisy of the class system right so these these uh, obligations these social obligations apply you know to the to the to the lower classes but not to the upper classes i think that's the explanation for that
1: you and your co-author uh, start by writing 700 self-described climate rebels breached the chain link fence surrounding amsterdam Skeppel Airport, the world's third busiest hub for international passenger traffic on November 5th. And this is an airport that has been uh, facing a lot of labor shortages of late uh, as well. Uh, You write that with bolt cutters, they opened holes in the fence and poured in some of them on bicycles and raced across the tarmac. Others laid ladders against the nine-foot-high fence and topped it on foot. So are these kinds of climate protests Becoming commonplace in Europe, are European activists outpacing activists back here in the U.S. when it comes to confronting climate change?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, in, I think in Europe, yeah, they are they are more radicalized, mostly because of you know groups like Extinction Rebellion and the A twenty two Network and folks like Roger Hallam, um, you know, the, the the great English activist and co founder of Extinction Rebellion. Um, so yeah, for sure, I think. I I don't know. I mean, American American protesters are just kind of, from my perspective, just kind of weak kneed and milk toast, frankly. Um, so yeah, I, I think that um, I think, for example, you know, you have the, the there was the sort of infamous incident now where two um, two climate protesters, very young, you know, eighteen year old women um through soup Campbell's soup onto a onto a painting like a van gogh or some such at the national gallery in the uk and um you know the 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 painting is is totally protected by like a you know like 50 panes of glass and you know a frame like a you know a frame that'll survive a nuclear war but everyone freaked out because they were desecrating art oh no what what hell horror! Well, um, you know, their point was that we're not going to have any food to eat, and there's not going to be art to enjoy if you have a totally destabilized Earth system, right? And so I think those kinds of symbolic actions on the part of these more radicalized protesters in Europe are really necessary, and that we should embrace them, you know? And for people to, for well, people comment commentators and pundits and 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 mainstream uh, climate activists to in you know to impugn those sorts of actions and say, well, you are sullying, you're sullying uh, the the heritage of humanity. I, I just think that's that's silly, um, and narrow. So, yeah, I mean, I think American. Activists should do. I mean, you guys were describing a forced occupation down in Atlanta. That's what's needed. Bodies on the line to stop the mega machine from its its so called progress. You know, this juggernaut marching across planet Earth. It's going to swallow up every goddamn ecosystem that it can in order to perpetuate its own growth. And that's what we're. we're, we're we are really facing here. We're facing what Lewis Mumford called the mega machine. Um, And it's, it's got to be stopped.
1: You write that a few days after the Scheppel uh, revolt, climate activists under the banner of scientists' rebellion uh, disrupted operations at private airports in four U.S. states and a dozen other countries, according to a New York Times roundup. And I want to talk about the media a little bit here. You are correct. This was reported in the New York Times. It was even in Section A, which is surprising. Often these are buried in the business section. But it was way back on page 15. Does Climate Action News get buried when it does get reported here in the US
2: oh for sure of course of course man look if you look at and and there's a there's a bigger problem here and the problem is that there is the refusal on the part of mainstream media and the gatekeepers who run these institutions like the New York Times to look squarely at the science now showing that techno-industrial society is on a trajectory toward toward near-term collapse now collapse right is not equivalent to a dude walking down the street and having a heart attack and dying collapse is the is defined as the unraveling of complex systems under the pressures of maintaining complexity right that's the definition that the the great anthropologist Joseph Tanner um, provided for for collapse so when I talk about the tra- trajectory toward collapse I'm saying that because of biophysical instability because we've we've left the Holocene and entered a period of, of of Gaian inst- instability, you know the Gaia. If you look at um, uh, what's his name's Gaia hypothesis, uh, you know the 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 once you destabilize that system, the all bets are off, man. It can go in all sorts of directions with all sorts of tipping points that are unknown and with consequences unknown. So you know we, we're we're facing we're facing a major crisis here. The media doesn't want to look squarely at that crisis because I think the, I think most of the gatekeepers in the media are embedded in the system of affluence and comfort. They are elites themselves. You know, there's a study done, oh, I think, out of MIT or maybe it's Cambridge. It was called the Handy Study. Human and Nature Dynamics is what handy, the acronym, stood for And um, basically, it looked at how how societies collapse, right? And uh, one of the major factors is that if you have a society bifurcated into common, what they call commoners and elites, right, the elites who are buffered from the consequences of negative environmental change will maintain the system producing that negative environmental change right up to the point of the whole system falling off the cliff. So instead of adapting and altering that system so that it becomes more earth friendly. No, they maintain the system in it, at it in status quo, but the status quo of course is untenable. Right? So I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with editors who were like, wow, we, we don't want to talk about that. Or that's not really an issue when I say, well, Hey, there's lots of scientists now discussing the, the, um, the possibility of, uh, of, you know, uh, uh, of the unraveling of this hyper complex dynamic techno industrial order of ours. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks are just not interested in hearing it. And meanwhile, I also hear from editors that that climate related articles or eco articles that touch on the um, on I guess you call it the ecological crisis, the world ecological crisis, don't quote unquote do well, right? With readers. That is, I guess that there's not a lot of clicks or whatever. They don't do well, um, which is of course a, just a moronic view of, uh, well, not moronic. I guess it's, just, it's like totally, a, a view totally infused with the capitalist marketing mindset right which says that journalism should cater to what the readers want that's a lie journalists should just tell truth and if the truth causes pain if the truth causes anxiety if the truth drives readers away then we should do more of it because the truth is the only thing that matters but in the case of our world ecological crisis we are not facing up to the truth man uh, you know, for example, I wrote I wrote another article for the Intercept. Um, it was published uh just a week and a half or two weeks prior to the the one about the climate protests in, in the Netherlands. And um that article was titled, Addressing Climate Change Will Not Quote Save the Planet. Right? There's a there's a lie that's been spread by mainstream environmental groups that if we address, if we just build out Uh, Renewable energy systems, everything's going to be fine, which misses the the much bigger picture that any ecologist with half a brain will be able to illuminate for you, which is that climate change is just one part, one part of the, the world problematique, which is overshoot, ecological overshoot, the overshoot of human population and the overshoot of human economies, right? Um, beyond the carrying capacity, beyond the biological carrying capacity of Mother Earth. Um, And so that overshoot, you know, it can be seen in multiple ways. If ozone depletion, loss of tropical rainforests and woodlands, the the expansion, the massive and continuing expansion of domesticated land, the massive die-off of of wildlife, the domination of the planet by, um, by, by Homo sapiens, uh, and our domesticated, um, uh, animals, um, coastal nitrogen, expansion, fisheries fully exploited, uh, biodiversity crash due to, again, the total domination by homo sapiens of not total, but the almost total domination of homo sapiens, uh, of, um, of the earth, um, desertification, soil loss, chemical nuclear waste, freshwater shortages, and on and on and on. but mainstream environmentalists would say, well, our, our only problem is climate change. Everything else is fine. Nope, there's no, we're not overpopulated. We're not overconsuming. We're not uh, overshooting the limits to growth on planet Earth. No, none. That's not an issue. And so instead, what, what, is, what is offered to the public is a bright bright creamy green dream, right? That technology is going to save us. It's literally going to be a deus ex machina, right? Of solar and wind power and lithium ion batteries, right? Um, that is going to somehow subsidize or continue to subsidize our profligate lifestyles, right? And our our deranged uh, growth system, economic and population growth system, um at the same time that we can, uh, we can, um, basically wean ourselves off fossil fuels. These are all lies. And, but again, they are widespread lies given, and they are lies given the imprimatur, right. Of authority from, um, major newspapers and major environmental groups.
1: We have had guests on the show before who have discussed the problems with population when it comes to climate change. But we've also had guests on the show that say that population isn't the issue. The real issue is... Uh, doing a really poor job at fair and equal distribution of goods around the world. The capitalism allows for the wealthy to hoard goods while the poor suffer. Is the pro- Do you think the pro- uh, problem is, and I don't want to make this a binary, so I'm sure it's a conflation of the two, is the problem uh, the growth in population or is the problem the economic system that we have of growth that undermines the fair and equal access to goods that everyone in the world needs?
2: Right, the binary thinking here is exactly the problem that that i see across the board it is not one or the other it is both if we are to if if we are to chart some sort of safe path through the world ecological crisis right then yes we're gonna have to reduce population massively and we're gonna have to reduce consumption and affluence massively both so it's not one or the other and that's that simplistic thinking man is that, too, has got to go. That binary thinking where, you know, I hear it all the time. Population is not an issue. Really? Okay. Talk to, talk to folks in, in Africa, man, sub-Saharan Africa. They, they'll tell you that population is an issue. They'll tell you. I mean, if you read, like, Jared Diamond or you read um, Thomas Homer Dixon's uh, analysis of w- one of the primary causes of the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, there's overpopulation overpopulation that strained the resources of a small country. That was only one factor, but is a factor that's not discussed often enough.
1: You were mentioning uh, Stephen McCrae earlier. You quote an eco-saboteur by the name of Stephen McCrae, an acquaintance of one of the authors of the piece you co-wrote, uh, obviously you, who recently completed a six-year prison sentence for industrial sabotage. McCrae states what the skep hole, as you were saying earlier, uh, people needed to do is destroy the airplanes as the as, on the tarmac and then destroy the airplane manufacturers. It, because you were talking about how there's this focus on production, and there doesn't seem to be this focus on consumption. Consumption. Is McRae saying the problem is, again, this is not a binary, that this is not consumption or production, but both? To be effective, does climate action need to focus not just on consumption and not just on production, but both? And how can that be done?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing about it. All hands on deck and all options on the table. That's how I see it. The question of how it can be done, I don't know. That's up to That's up to the activists. I'm just a journalist who's pissed off. That's all. I'm pissed off that that my, my children's future is being mortgaged, you know, for for present day pleasures. Um, but how how that will work. I mean, how, look, let's be honest, man, you destroy those airplanes. Those people are going to jail for 20 years. Just like, I mean, McRae, he hit some some electrical infrastructure and, so, and mining operations. He's lucky he got only six years. Ruby Montoya and and Jessica Reznicek, who were uh, saboteurs of, um, I think, the Keystone pipeline, they just got six years, you know? And that's hard time, hard, hard time. So the level of heroism and courage required to take these sorts of actions will have to be very high. You know, on the other hand, um, you look back to the history of the suffragettes, right? The suffragettes committed incredible acts of sabotage. There are stories of, of uh, who was the, the leader of the suffragettes? I think it was Emmeline Pankhurst, I think her name was, or Susan Pankhurst. And um, they would go around, they'd have these well-dressed ladies going around with paraffin oil and like gasoline and setting buildings on fire and setting yachts on fire and blowing up statues and smashing windows The 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 pankhurst i believe there were sisters was it emily and susan well anyways the, the pankhurst sisters talked about the argument of the broken window pane because no one was giving women the right to vote the men weren't allowing it well the women said well to hell with that we're going to disrupt business, we're going to disrupt society, we're going to turn, we're going to, we're going to turn the normal, the the daily course of life upside down until they recognize our rights. So there is some precedent for this sort of thing working. However, the difference is that with any civil rights or human rights movement, right, you're talking about of effectively, what I would say is that a rearranging of the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? Um, whereas a, because, I mean, if you think of techno-industrial civilization as an inherently unsustainable um, creature, right? That is going to probably destroy itself in the long run, simply because the very, the very, um, its very structure is not sustainable, Right? Um, so if you think of it as the Titanic, okay. So we can rearrange some of the deck chairs of the Titanic. So, so some of the, some of the people sitting in the deck chairs have more rights and are more respected and we're doing that lovely. Great. However, that's a far cry from completely transforming the underlying system so that the Titanic is altered from its course toward, toward the iceberg. So we're talking about a fundamental transformation of. Of society, that you know, is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, I would say, maybe impossible to achieve. Certainly, I think almost impossible to achieve in the short time frame that scientists are saying we have to um, to reduce carbon emissions and broadly address the the world ecological crisis. <laughs>
1: I find that pretty ironic that the uh, uh, there was a broken window pane strategy by suffragettes uh, to challenge the law, and then we have the broken window strategy of Mayor Giuliani in the early twenty first century about not challenging the law but about enforcing the law. So that's kind of ironic. We are speaking with Christopher Ketchum, who co wrote the Intercept piece, "The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt." You can follow Christopher on Twitter at c ketchum wild and. Uh, Christopher writes at ChristopherKetchum.com for his journalism nonprofit, Denatured. So uh, it, it is. So uh, the Times article that you were mentioning earlier about the scientist rebellion that happened shortly after the Skeppel uh, incident in early November, uh, that Times story is from November 10th of last year. And it's by a person by the name of Vimal Patel. And Patel writes, more than a dozen protesters, including scientists, were arrested at private airports in the United States, coinciding with similar actions around the world to highlight the toll of private jets on the environment, activists said. The protesters temporarily shut down the main entrance to Teterboro Airport in New Jersey and also picketed at airports in North Carolina, California, Washington State. They were joined by protesters who took similar actions at 13 other airports in 12 other countries, activists said. So far, so good. But Patel adds this climate, he adds this, climate activists have taken part in several high-profile stunts recently. But instead of mentioning the Skephole protest, which happened only a few days earlier, Patel reports that in October, climate activists flung mashed potatoes on a glass-covered Claude Monet painting, grain stacks at a German museum. The $111 million painting was not damaged, officials said. Activists in Britain and Italy recently glued themselves to art. And that's one thing that's often uh, missing, as you were pointing out, that this art is protected. It is safe. That's often missing from those stories. They show some a sensational video of somebody throwing paint at a painting, and then they don't explain that that painting has not been damaged in any way. And as you write, and as you pointed out earlier, spattering of soup on museum art comes with an unsettling aura of selling humanity's heritage in order to save it. But the media, again, didn't report that it had not actually been physically damaged in any way. What happens when the media, like the New York Times, links luxury emissions to art destruction. How might that impact the argument of reducing luxury emissions? How might that affect the way in which the reader understands that story?
2: Well, look, the key phrase there is $111 million for the Monet painting. Okay, really? $111 million? For an effing painting? That right there tells you the perversion in which we're mired the painting is worthless without a functional society to, to to appreciate it the inflated value of the painting is part of is part of the system in which the super rich rule it's a form of asset inflation that does not reflect the things we really need to value. Right. So, I mean, it's just incredible to me. Yes. That, that there would be, there would be this, uh, this horror over not even defacing, they're not even defacing the paintings. They're just putting, <laughs> putting some mashed potatoes in some soup. I mean, hell, you can eat the food after you throw it on the painting, you know, just, it's just abominable because again, this is just missing, it's missing the point. And, um, and it's almost a tacit defense of, of the, the, um, of the privileges of the super wealthy, you know, um, because, because remember, to, uh, you know, uh, threatening, just threatening with your mashed potatoes, the poor $111 million painting is the focus how about we ask what would drive a young person to act in this fashion well they're really concerned about their future a future that's been sold out by the people running things which and it happens it so happens that a lot of the developed world is run as a gerontocracy A bunch of old rich people who don't give a rat's ass, apparently, about the future of these um, kids who are so desperate to get the public to understand the crisis that we're in, that they're throwing food at paintings, at, at museums.
1: The Associated Press reported on New Year's Day, the UK Division of Climate Change protest group Extinction Rebellion says its rebels plan to temporarily stop blocking busy roads, gluing themselves to buildings, and engaging in other acts of civil disobedience because such methods have not achieved their desired effects. The group said in a New Year's Eve website post, as we ring in the new year, we have a controversial resolution to temporarily shift away from public disruption as a primary tactic. We recognize and celebrate the power of disruption to raise the alarm and believe that constantly evolving tactics is a necessary approach. Instead, we call on everyone to help us disrupt this corrupt government. The AP added to further its goals of getting politicians, corporations, and the public, quote, to end the fossil fuel era. The group said it would instead focus on broadening its support with actions such as getting 100,000 people to surround the Houses of Parliament in London on April 21st. Now, a lot of the reporting on this story came with headlines that say, uh, Extinction uh, Rebellion has vowed to quit. So a lot of the things were just about how they were just not going to be protesting whatsoever anymore. And then you get to the bottom of the second or third paragraph and you find out they're trying to get 100,000 people to surround the House of Parliament in London on September 21st. Strategically, what do you think about Extinction Rebellion's evolution from disruption to mass demonstration? Can you have a mass demonstration that focuses on consumption and production?
2: Well, no, look, first of all, a mass demonstration that surrounds the Houses of Parliament in the UK would, by its very nature, be disruptive. So they're not, I don't think Extinction Rebellion is ceasing any sort of plans for disruption. They What they're ceasing uh, are the preeminently stupid tactics of laying down in highways and pissing off motorists who are trapped in, in the techno-industrial system in that this is the system we live in. We drive cars, there are motorways, our public transit has been eviscerated by the trucking industry, at least in the United States. There are many communities that are dependent on cars. If you lay down the street, all you're doing is pissing off average citizens who might be in your corner. Similarly, I saw a video of Extinction Rebellion activists jumping on top of a, of a commuter train in the UK in London, causing the commuter, causing the train to cease operations as a crowd of angry people who just want to get home to their families yelled at them. Serves no purpose. What should I think so? I think it's very, <laughs> very smart that Extinction Rebellion has ceased this silliness. And um, instead, uh, should, they should be targeting government and corporations, government and corporations. Target the capitalist state, target the capitalists themselves, leave average citizens alone, or, you know, hell, disrupt, do what they did at, at, at Schiphol Airport uh, in the Netherlands, just disrupt the lives of the super rich, make their lives hell, make this is hell, What happens every day for rich people? (laughs) So, um, yes, I think it's I think it's and I actually did not know that I did not know that they renounced that policy because all along I was thinking, man, this is really stupid what they're doing.
1: Well, it's not surprising that you didn't know. It took me a long time to find that article and find any reporting on it. I had to find it at the CBC. I couldn't find any of it, any reporting about that statement elsewhere other than their website. Uh, You also mentioned how Jonathan Leggett, one of the activists in Skeppel, told you and your co-author, the super rich have got used to polluting as they please with a total disregard for people and planet. And private jets are the pinnacle of these luxury emissions that we simply cannot afford. Our action brought them back to Earth. We wanted to show the extremeness and injustice related to this manner of transport. So luxury emissions, it's in the headline for your piece, luxury emissions. How would you define what that term means? After all, can't business executives claim these are not a luxury but necessary to do business that keeps people in jobs? Where do we draw the line? Is a 100 tourists going to some tourist destination? Is that a luxury emission?
2: Mm, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer because I, I, I would have to assume that where you draw the line would be rather arbitrary, right? It would depend on um, the social values of the people drawing those lines. It would depend on uh, if you have a, a collective and they come to a collective decision on, on where, you know, what what are luxury emissions? I mean, for the purposes of the article, luxury emissions are those that um, that are emitted by the really super, the super rich i say I don't know, I, and I don't even know what the super rich are. Do they make ten million dollars a year? Do they have assets of ten million dollars a year, but you know, make hundred thousand dollars a year from their, from dividends and stock options and the like? I don't know, but um, the point is, is that when you get rich, your carbon and ecological footprint skyrockets, and that's not tenable anymore. It's it's not not sustainable.
1: You write that climate disorder won't be remedied through an orderly march of green energy replacing fossil fuels, the planetary build out of wind turbines and solar panels, as you were mentioning earlier, while simultaneously making and plugging in a billion new electric furnaces and vehicles look straightforward in a spreadsheet. In truth, though, ramping up green energy alone won't cut fossil fuel use quickly enough to meet the Paris warm uh, warming limit of one and a half degrees Celsius, supplanting the world's combustion based energy. Energy infrastructure with an all-electric model will be too lumbering, too roundabout, and too full of its own drawbacks to fully bend the emissions curve in the brief time left. What do you think it will take for consumption of fossil fuels to drop, let alone their uh, conspicuous consumption of fossil fuels, as in luxury emissions by the super wealthy? Politically, culturally, socially, how willing do you think the people here in the U.S. are to cut consumption of fossil fuels
2: uh i don't think they're willing at all (laughs) i think we're we're in a we're in a hard place man um yeah i I mean look why is china continuing to build coal fired power plants Hmm? why is there you know (laughs) we're we're in trouble we're in trouble because the the uh As far as i understand it we're not going to be able to power the techno-industrial system as it has been powered right with renewable energy alone so we got a choice we can go towards a carbon-free system but live lives that are at least lives in the developed world right that are um much straightened where our belts are tightened and our energy freedoms have been highly limited. Are people going to go for that? Nope. New way, man, because you have an entire complex marketing propaganda. I call it brainwashing of basically saying to people, you know, you need you need affluence to feel good about yourself and look at that person over there. They're flying to Hawaii and they just got a new they just got a new Prius, a twenty five thousand dollar Prius. Don't you want one, too? I mean, that's how that's how our system works. You know, it's uh, it's sick. It's like a pathological system we live in that makes you feel bad for not having dead. Material objects or not being able to, to display yourself on vacation on Instagram, right? Or TikTok. So, I mean, I know this sounds dark, right? You're supposed to, at the end of the interview, you're supposed to have mandatory hope. Oh, wait, we're just going <laughs> to eat, we have uh, uh, gluten free, kosher cupcakes and electric cars. Everything's going to be fine. But that's bullshit. <laughs> that's not how things work so to answer your question I am very much without expectation that we will be um just to take this the one the one part of overshoot carbon emissions right because as I was explaining earlier climate change and carbon emissions are just one one facet of the catastrophic course of techno-industrial civilization, right? So just in the matter of carbon emissions, I'm skeptical that we're going to get off fossil fuels anytime soon. You were
1: uh, mentioning the impact of the wealthy on culture, on society, on our demand and our consumer desires. You write, as the skeppel rebels surely know luxury carbon, like all manufactured desire, is a contagion oozing inexorably from the sanctums of the few to become desires of the many. So, do I mean, so we know that the wealthy is through their uh, media displays that they create demand and uh, their displays of their uh, conspicuous consumption in the media that does have an impact on uh, the public's desire to consume more, including more fossil fuels. So is celebrity in the United States, you were mentioning propaganda, is celebrity in the United States propaganda for consumption that is a cause of fossil fuel emissions, which cause climate change? Does celebrity in the United States today fuel climate change?
2: Absolutely. 100%, man. So, yeah, I mean, what, what I was referring to, what Kamenoff and I were referring to in those lines in the um, intercept piece, is the um, the concept that Thorstein Veblen first formulated, uh, which was that of uh, um, conspicuous display, conspicuous consumption, invidious, invidious consumption, invidious display. The idea that you know that that we are um, constantly comparing ourselves in in uh, the society to those higher uh, in the ranks of class. And that, you know, we wanna be rich, man. I mean, John Steinbeck put it um, like this. He said, the poor in the United States, this is just a paraphrase, the poor in the United States think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? So so the, the idea is we're all gonna be rich someday we're all going to have those same privileges and those that same that same ability to lord to lord over the world with money, and to to lord over the world with pollution. Um, so yes, absolutely, celebrity culture is toxic, man. You know, it's uh, just uh, it's just uh, it's an insult. It's insult to intelligence, really, when you think about the, the, the idea that we'd be looking up to these people who really do nothing for a living, by the way. I mean, like like celebrities. What do, what do celebrities do? Actors? OK, if you got rid of if suddenly there was an, a great rapture and all the actors went to heaven tomorrow. What would change? Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing substantial in society would change. If you get rid of all the school teachers and the garbage men, then you have problems. So I think the school teachers and the garbage men are the celebrities, frankly, and, uh, and you know, and the baseball players, football players, uh, actors, and the like, who, uh, who form the pantheon of our celebrity culture, we should send them to Mars, to an airless planet.
1: So, does the fight for the climate need to become a class war to be effective, in your opinion? Do you believe the class aspects of climate change and the inequality when it comes to emissions and things like luxury emissions is driven by a reluctance to discuss class in the United States and uh, an obstacle to addressing climate change?
2: 100%. 100%. That is the issue that we're not talking about. Remember, there's no classes. In the United States, man, we don't. We're all equal. <laughs> so it's all equal opportunity. OK, lies, lies, lies. Um, yes, absolutely. If we don't if we don't address class and uh, and the implications of class bifurcation and and the extreme inequality and the rule by the wealthy, the rule by oligarchy. We're never going to get to a sustainable society, as I mentioned earlier. Elites are buffered by their money from the negative consequences of environmental change. They will resist altering the system, the system of growth, the system of capital accumulation, the system of constantly constantly expanding um, ecological footprint. They will resist any change to that system that has benefited them so greatly right up to the very end. So that effectively, to change such a society, you got to get rid of the elites. And then we're talking about revolution.
1: Well, how reluctant do you think the uh, gatekeepers, as you were calling them in the media, how reluctant do you think that they would be or are in uh, reporting on any class aspect of any climate change action? I mean, would we ever even find out from the media that these are class-based climate actions?
2: Um, I don't know. I haven't really tried. I haven't really tried specifically to interest editors at, say, the New York Times in an article about class warfare or climate change activism as class warfare. So I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that such reporting appears to be um, rare.
1: One last question for you, Christopher. First of all, thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been far too long. Christopher Ketchum co-wrote The Intercept piece, The Shutdown of Luxury Emissions, Should Be at the Center of Climate Revolt. He is a, for, a freelance journalist and author of the 2020 book, the La- This Land How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West. You can follow Christopher on Twitter at C. Ketchum Wild. And he writes at com for his journalism nonprofit, Denatured. Christopher was on our show back in 2015 to talk about his then just published Harper's article, The Great Republican Land Heist. And if you do want to hear other conversations about climate activism and uh, class war, if you will, go back and listen to our interview from last year with Matthew Huber on that exact same topic. One last question for you, Christopher, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Is climate change and the activism around it is that a threat to the airline as well as tourism industries? Does climate change, this is always the question that you hear, does climate change, fighting climate change, do climate, uh, climate actions mean fewer jobs for people in the airline and tourism industry?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, look, it, it, tourism accounts for something between like 8 and 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Tourism is, is an obnoxious... Force in the world, tourism leads to um, communities where you've got um, enriched business owners and then a, basically a servant caste who are um, scurrying about, smiling at a bunch of people passing through their communities like ghosts in order to get tips. Um, tourism is um, is yes the 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 infrastructure that supports tourism is um fossil fuel fossil fuel extraction fossil fuel production um airlines automobiles restaurants hotelier chain restaurants chain hotels um and uh, oh, oh sorry road building lots and lots of road building lots of tarmac lots of concrete all right so yeah, I, I think I think tourism should just be abolished, man. I, I think it's. I'm, I'm working on a piece right now about tourism at Arches National Park, and the effect that it's had there on, on the the nearby community of Moab. And it's it's really ugly. It's really ugly. It's again the enrichment of the few, and you know the landowners and the business owners they make out, but the people who do the work in the community, they suffer high costs of living. Unaffordable housing, miserable working conditions and miserable treatment by tourists who think they're privileged. So yeah, down with the tourism industry, down with the airline industry, there
1: you uh, go. When we had uh, sociologist William I. Robinson on a couple of years ago, he was talking about how tourism is such a m- major driver of inequality in all those communities. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you know, I I can't afford to travel. I don't travel. I don't know if I would if I had the money. But I'm told by everybody who d- does travel, I do not and cannot understand the world because I do not travel. So, it, it, will there be a less of an understanding of the world because all of a sudden tourism evaporates?
2: <laughs> well, look, look, there's a difference between travel and tourism. Tourism is a, is a hyper-capitalized, uh, market-driven uh, system for profiting from place, culture, history, and, 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 um, and art, right? Okay, travel is the, is the act of, of going somewhere, immersing yourself in that culture with respect and decency. And not doing it as part of a, a, a systemic profit-making system. Nothing wrong with travel, man. But it's the, it's the industry that has arisen around travel that has made it so toxic and pathological. I mean, no one, for example, I go back to Arches National Park. Nobody, nobody wants to go to a national park and be in conditions similar to riding the 4 train into Manhattan full of crowds and people. No, that's not what they're looking for. They're not looking for a commercialism or commodification of land and space. They're looking to see the natural world and be free for a moment, for a blissful moment from the psychological torture of the techno-industrial system.
1: That's interesting because it makes me think of uh tourism as a form of colonialism and travel is. as something that's Absolutely. about education.
2: Yes, travel is education. That is education, man. I mean I lived in France for many years. They could call me a tourist, but I ended up living there for years. So I guess that makes me made me an expat. <laughs> but, you know, the bigger picture is yeah, tourism. Is, tourism is, is bad news, and if we are to address carbon emissions, then tourism will have to go. And you have, of course, the techno messiness, technomaniacs, technophiles, um, saying that we're going to somehow power our jets with biofuels. Oh, really? You're going to take all that land that's now being used to produce food, and you're going to use it to produce jet fuels so rich people can fly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great idea. (laughs) On that note,
1: and taking into um, thought and mind that uh, the name of our show is This Is Hell, Christopher, thank you so much for being back on our show. It truly is a pleasure. And uh, we're going to be in contact with you soon to have you back on the show, because it's been enjoyable speaking with you again.
2: Well, right on, man. Thank you for having me.
1: All right. Take care.
2: Bye.
1: Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, This Is Hell. If what you just heard from Christopher Ketchum about luxury emissions of the wealthy... That are destroying our planet and us. If that made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. podcast shortly after it. Patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
0: This week's question from hell is, what have you repeatedly failed to do, but keep trying to achieve anyway? Mm -hmm. Over at Facebook, John T. answers, earn enough cash to conceivably retire before the age of 90. (laughs) All right. Uh, SLS answers, destroy capitalism <laughs> SLS is very busy it's a tough nut to crack it is and I think
1: SLS probably has like different colored coated string <laughs> all over his wall with photos of people you know
0: I can see it all now I
1: can do a big bulletin board
0: over Twitter way tell the truth says get out of bed in the morning without hitting the snooze button on my alarm clock
1: <laughs> all right that is difficult.
0: Old friend, eat fart sixty nine replies. Uh, Get out of credit card debt. Good luck with that. Not, not going to happen. And finally, rock taster answers. Make Chuck laugh. I think I've managed to shock him twice. Is that true? Did did rock taster rock shock? Rock has you?
1: shocked me, but I don't know if rock taster has made me laugh yet. Well,
0: it's not a strong showing coming out of the gate. It's sort of just like uh, bearing his soul. It's not really a joke. <laughs> I think
1: it's. Uh... He's trying to get me to feel sorry for him. Right. therefore, they get It's laugh. like
0: the opposite of laugh. It's like the other mask of <laughs> comedy and drama. He picked the wrong mask.
1: Exactly. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com. Clicking on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to thisishellradio at... Gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show When we are announcing this week's winner Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth During this week's moment Again, Jeff influences the influencers Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996 This is hell And if you want to help us climb out of that debt You can subscribe to our Patreon podcast At patreon.com Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon And get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast Which streams Every Thursday in his podcast shortly after on Patreon on this week's Patreon, the first week back to regular shows this week. And I got all sorts of things rattling around in my head because the conversations we had with guests this first week of 2023 live all new shows. First, there was Esme von Hoffman and how I shouldn't have schadenfreude about investors who lose money in crypto collapses like the one experienced by FTX. Because the vast majority of those investors are not the kind of crypto bros created by the media and those role playing the fictional crypto bro on social media. The whole thing is so overrun with fictions that groups like FTX were openly lying, then paying influencers to openly lie about their services online. And then the media lied about who the typical investor is so we could not have so we would not have sympathy for those ripped off by newly minted millionaires and billionaires who were essentially engaging in a Ponzi scheme to rip off the vulnerable. Then we spoke about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks with Stefania Marizzi, and we discussed the role the media plays as stenographers, not only for the police, but also for the military industrial intelligence complex and uh, for powerful economic interests. But there were a couple of questions I never got around to asking Stefania, despite the fact that I had planned for two of those questions to be among the first three I asked. Those two I never got around to asking were, what does it say? to you about u.s culture politics even society when revealing war crimes by mercenaries fighting for the u.s is seen as more of a crime than actual war crimes that leave innocent people dead what does it say about the u.s and our media when revealing war crimes is more of a crime than the war crimes themselves and secondly what does it say to you about the state of democracy in the united states and throughout the western nations that claim they are democracies and have opposed julian assange when those who expose lies and cover-ups by the government are punished And those who do the lying and covering up go free. While I never got around to asking Stefania those questions I will do my damnedest to answer them on Patreon this week Finally, today we spoke with Christopher Ketchum And again, we were back with the influencers who fill reality TV shows With a conspicuous consumption of the filthy rich Who then set the standard for U.S. consumption Which fuels our planet's death spiral And the press cheers them along All the way down to the bottom of a burning pit That is all that is left of Earth Or something like that So on Patreon tomorrow, I'll be looking back at the week that was, our first week here on This Is Hell in 2023, and see if I can find any clues as to what this week's shows say about what will be happening on This Is Hell for the rest of the year. Also on Patreon, in October of 2001, a little over a month after 9-11, the so-called Patriot Act, and by the way, that is an acronym, it isn't just the word Patriot, P-A-T-R-I-O-T is an acronym Went into effect which greatly expanded U.S. police power Both here in the U.S. and around the world uh, Criminalizing all sorts of political activity as a national security threat to the United States Causing a witch hunt of suspected anti-American insurgent terrorists In the then brand new war on terror What you may know today as the forever war Which like forever chemicals you can never quite wash off your hands no matter how hard you scrub. It it took little time for a guest to appear on our show decrying what the Patriot Act was, including award-winning investigative journalist uh, Greg Pallas, who was talking about it within only a couple months, if not just several weeks of the Patriot Act becoming law. Shortly after the act's one-year anniversary, we were joined in November of 2002 by writer, legal editor, and law professor Chuck Michaels, who had just posted a two-part story on the USA Patriot Act at Truthout. Which, unfortunately, I can't find that two-part story right now. Chuck was also uh, the author of the first definitive book on the Patriot Act, No Greater Threat, America After September 11 and the Rise of a National Security State. Chuck asks, did America's proud history of civil liberties come tumbling down on September 11th? Chuck saw it as a wake-up call for all Americans. He was also worried the U.S. at the time may be transforming itself into a national security culture. Mm -hmm we were. The book identifies and examines 12 common characteristics of a national security state and discusses how those characters are being fulfilled in some instances in an accelerated manner following the passing of the Patriot Act. The book includes a meticulous description of each of the 10 points of the USA Patriot Act, which is often discussed but seldom explained, and shows why the act ranks as one of the most significant pieces of legislation in many years. Uh, the act in many years the act grants broad powers to federal investigators in surveillance, intelligence, prosecution, and interagency information sharing, and most of its provisions have no sunset, so they are permanent. But the only way to hear me talk about the hell we went through this week. And you can hear a conversation that is very critical of the Patriot Act from just a little over a year after it became law. The only way you can hear all of that is through supporting This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word, giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's like two years of additional This Is Hell with each and every... Everyone featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not online anywhere else. That's Patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff Jeff, Dorchin with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner winner. We'll also be telling you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. We have one guest booked for next week. We have several interview requests out right now, so we will tell you all about that following Jeff. Live from Hangover Country. This is hell. Dan, I know you have Hafe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. One more time of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of truth, the moment of
3: truth, the moment of 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 truth, the The moment of truth, the moment of truth. The agony of influencers. For the current job I've been hired to do, one of my duties is to open a tab of Instagram stories or reels or whatever they're called and let them play one after the other on a dedicated iPhone on the desk next to my computer. About an hour and 40 minutes takes care of all the new ones each day. I'm also tasked with monitoring and responding to regular Instagram posts, messages, and comments. The most onerous thing about it? is the influencers. No one really knows what an influencer is or how they become what they are. Maybe there are already detailed treatises on the subject, but those would be premature. The true historic scourge of the influencer has yet to ripen and play out in its fully poisonous catastrophe. Tide for most onerous, is being exposed to the inspirational and motivational pep talk life coaching messaging of so much Instagram content. It's not only influencers who are responsible. Such admonishments, aphorisms, and quotations are in fact most often posted by your rank and file poster of content of which there is a multitude, millions upon millions of foot soldiers parroting and reposting self-help and positive attitude formulations from the likes of Dale Carnegie and Khalil Gibran, misappropriated, out of context, often misattributed or garbled, some of it initiated by influencers, some just scraped from the walls of the web while gathering acorns and bluebird feathers for a cyber dream catcher. I conflate the inspirational and the motivational into one grand annoyance for a reason. They annoy me. They annoy me grandly. I begin at a negative philosophical position. Announce to me what you consider to be a universal truth and my initial reaction is, no it isn't. And we may proceed from there. Be a blessing and you will get blessed. Yes, because the universe is a transactional venue, like global free trade or a vending machine. You put your blessings in the slot and you get a candy bar. Turn I hope into I will. Your attitude makes all the difference when they come to shut down your drag queen story hour, blow up your power station, shoot your offspring, or fire randomly into your house of worship. Tell me... The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, and I will say to you, tell me that again, and the arc of my foot is going to bend toward your ass. Big talk for a guy whose life was snuffed out for opposing war and trying to lift black people and workers out from under systemic abuse and murder. Of course, that's my perfect hindsight talking, but anyone quoting him now should know better. The man who spoke optimistically about the way the arc of history bends suffered an assassination, That is one of the shining examples of persistent fascism bending the arc the other way. There have always been influencers. The prophets, the poets, the philosophers, the saints, the labor organizers, the protest movement instigators, the demagogues, the advertising geniuses, the circus touts, the snake oil salesmen, the captains of industry, the carnival barkers, the warlords, the heads of the FBI... We just happen to live at a time when they are a dime a dozen and delivered electronically like pop songs from a bottomless jukebox. Most of them are persuasive these days first because of their youth and physical attractiveness. And their makeup and fashion tips, their ability to open packages, to give suspect health and financial advice, offer entertainment recommendations and dangerous dietary mantras and fitness tactics and motivational cheerleading. Never before have influencers been so available, so numerous, so shallow, and so sickeningly upbeat. On the other hand, what choice does Generation Omega really have? I speak as a minimally productive, loud-mouthed advocate of leisure socialism, leisure commons, and abundance in economics, which is no easy life, let me tell you. I am almost indistinguishable from an invalid and easily mistaken for a drain on society. But then, part of my living thesis is that no human being is a drain on society except those who hoard enormous wealth and coordinate it off from others. Those a society looks down on as worthless and helpless are more helpful in their inaction and worth far more than the exalted few with their private luxury and megalomaniacal caprice. It's a megalomaniacal society blanketed in the oppressive language cloud of corporatism and blinkered by dictates of utmost profit. Although these shallow influencers and their eager followers are trying their best to be optimistic in the unbearable mess we've left to them, their hyper-productivity and self-improvement merely feed the very monster of profit motive, acquisitiveness, and selfishness that created the mess, a monster itself created by the failures in judgment of all previous generations. Naturally, there are exceptions, as there were in previous eras, as there are in all eras. Despite having to struggle against the overall destructive current of civilization, many have made the effort and resisted, and many still do. Human life would be unbearable had not so many fought the arrogant kings, conquerors, and thought leaders, and partially succeeded in improving things. Yes, it takes motivation, fitness, and a dose of optimism to bring those efforts to fruition— but those qualities must also be tempered with skepticism, lest the vessel containing them ossify and shatter from collision with too much countervailing reality. That Greta Thunberg or Greta Thunberg, yeah, I'm as surprised as anyone. I guess her secret is being somewhere on the autism spectrum. She's a very high-profile example of some of the qualities that are too rare in human beings, but have nevertheless existed in individuals and groups throughout civilization. Mostly working away in obscurity, raising their children well, or alternately abstaining from having children, supporting communalist values, registering their righteous objections to wars and other, more casual violence, At this time in history, when the modern-day Nazi equivalents are doing their best to bring violent social control to bear by normalizing police killings, vigilante intimidation, and public firearms massacres, we need to rebel, and we need to support all legitimate rebellion, but definitely not rebellion, that already displays on its public exterior the seeds of selling out. Change for the better has rarely come from the influencer in the spotlight. It comes from the masses, for whom shallow distractions from the injustices done to them will eventually lose their luster. Then the injustices, large and small, monstrous and petty, glaring and subtle, will emerge as the one great determinant binding them. That is when they'll take back, for themselves and for the dispossessed planet, what is owed. This has been the moment of truth. Jolly good day.
1: So, Greta Thunberg, or whatever, (laughs) and Julian Assange, they're both autistic. They are both challenging the military-industrial complex and powerful economic interests. How long will it take for the far right to make autism a scary national security threat, Jeff?
3: Oh, that is a good question. I... Don't know. I mean, once they start gassing the feeble-minded, I, I suppose the autistic will be up there. Uh, I don't know. I, I just, you know, Chuck, just to uh, slip in my answer for the question from hell. Oh, yeah. Uh, I just, I...
1: Wait a second. Let me mean, read it. Let me read it so everybody knows what this week's question from hell oh, is. I don't is. know. How would you read it? What, what would you, it be? What have, have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway?
3: Make bechamel sauce. Oh, really?
1: Why do you? Yeah, what? I can't do it. Why? What is the problem? Why do you keep fail, failing? I keep
3: what? breaking up. I don't know. I don't have the subtle hand that the uh, the genius chefs have. And you know what? I don't really want it that much, but I keep trying to do it, <laughs> despite my lack of enthusiasm.
1: Do you have any problem with hollandaise?
3: I have no problem with hollandaise. Mm. I just hollandaise is the easy thing.
1: The new thing at uh, stupid uh, restaurants, where you know it's just a whole bunch of corporate <laughs> investors, and there's no way an independent mom and pop restaurant whatsoever. The big new thing that I've learned over the last couple of weekends is if you get biscuits and gravy now, the gra- the uh, um, the hollandaise. Or no, I'm sorry, eggs benedict. The hollandaise sauce that comes with it is now mm-hmm. sweet.
3: What? That is an outrage. It is an
1: outrage. That it's not makes lem- me want... To- not lemony in any way, not lemony in any way or tart in any way. It's just sweet, sweet, sweet.
3: What the heck? They're just trying to get unload more sugar on us. Yes, they Fill are. Fill us with sugar, turn us into candy. You know, the human body is already 110% corn. <laughs> really?
1: I was unaware of that. Yeah. And so Oh, did I- you see
3: the movie The Menu?
1: <laughs> no, I did not.
3: Well, that's how I want to handle these these hollandaise counterfeiters. Did you enjoy it? Merchers. Not as much as I probably would have had I not seen a lot of similar movies. Uh, Me being in the movie industry, people are, you know, I don't get the screeners anymore because I am so frequently unemployed, but I get to go to people's houses or go to free screenings. And uh, I saw Triangle of Sadness, which I think was a better take on the... There's a lot of movies this time around that are like, get revenge on the rich. That's their whole thing. It's like class war. Really big theme.
1: So did you see the Banshees of Isherin Minish?
3: I love the Banshees of Isherin Maneish. <laughs> Yes, it's great. The thing that's another trend, though, is I I, I can't say I I can't say actually because I don't want to give a spoiler. But uh, I love the Banshees of Inisher, and It was like watching uh, it was like watching a, a an old like Ionesco absurdist play almost. It was uh, great, and I love that guy. I love the in Bruges so. This was knowing bruised, but it was uh, a fine thing. Did you see it?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm planning on watching this weekend. I was also told by somebody that in order for me to, if I wanted to actually see the new... uh, ant-man movie that's called like quantum mania i have to watch the entire loki series as well as go back and yeah. watch end game again so i can understand the plot line and you know what i'm just not that invested in a marvel movie that i have to go back and watch seven or, you know eight hours of shows and then another three and a half hour movie just to understand a 90 minute movie i just don't have that kind yeah.
3: of time you know there. no shade on comics but i'm tired of comics yeah. i mean people are like comics have always been king and I'm, I'm fine with comics. I'm true.
1: sick of comics turning into movies.
3: I'm just sick of there being so much. Well, I mean, the the, the whole industry revolves on comics and Star Wars and Disney and
1: and the military-industrial complex to help fund all those things.
3: Yes. Oh, so I was just thinking about how much I hate Zero Dark Thirty. By that.
1: oh, good lord, is that a misrepresentation?
3: Holy it's, crap! It's probably talk about. Talk about you were talking about influencers earlier in the week as being advertisers. Uh, that is an advertisement for CIA torture, I guess. Yeah, congratulations! Congratulations, Catherine. What's your face? I can't even Bigelow. remember her name, and I'm not, huh? Bigelow, don't I don't care.
1: <laughs> <laughs> also, I'd like to make a correction, uh, that you, uh, Help me with a little bit online this week. I said during Patreon last week that Chakotay was in My Dinner with Andre. Actually, the actor Robert Mendoza (laughs) was in. Uh, No, he was in Eating Raul. He plays Raul in Eating Raul and Gets Eaten. And I confused somehow Dick Sean, is that what his name is from uh, My Dinner with Andre? No. (laughs) What the hell's his name? No, Wallace Sean. Wallace Sean. Wallace Sean. Dick Dick Sean is the guy from Get Smart. uh, I confuse him with Paul Bartel, who is the lead in Eating Raoul. I don't have any idea how I made that confusion. So I got go to go back and
3: watch mentioned. Eating Raoul again. Mm, it's delicious. Look all that star-studded energy. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't think I helped that at all. I think it was Sebastian who was You're pointing it uh, maybe, out. Maybe I don't know, but uh, I thought you were saying that Chakotay was on Deep Space Nine, <laughs> and I was like. Chakotay was never on Deep, Deep Space, Space Nine. <laughs> like, I I was not, I did not help you. I was befuddled by the entire conversation. I was like, I bet you Chakotay was on there.
1: <laughs> he was on stingy. You know, yeah, totally. Why true. wouldn't
3: he go to Deep Space Nine and gamble and <laughs> go drinking, you know?
1: Because he, he was already eating and eating Raul. Oh, jeez. Jeffy, until next time. What? Stay beautiful.
3: Oh, man. Okay.
1: Live from Landstone, from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more answers from our listeners?
0: This week's question from Hell is, what have you repeatedly failed to do but keep trying to achieve anyway? And everyone has failed to give any new answers. All right,
1: so the answers I liked most were, I did like SLS saying, destroy capitalism. Uh, That's what he's failed to do in the past, but he keeps trying to do anyway. But SLS, even though that is a fantastic answer... You won last week, and we still haven't heard from you as to which piece of merchandise you would like as your prize for winning last week's Question from Hell. Figman saying, grow up. Fantastic. Fabio saying, enjoy work. Braden saying, get a full night's sleep. Uh, Rock Taster saying, make Chuck laugh. Uh, Ahmad S. saying, get Chuck's attention. And you did get my attention uh, several weeks ago when you won the question from hell, but have not contacted us about what prize you want that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Truth to tweet saying, get out of bed in the morning without hitting the snooze button on my alarm clock. I wish there was somebody in my own household who could... Actually, accomplish that because I hate the snooze button. And Roma Flew saying, find the most effective form of protest, one that doesn't annoy my philosophical kin, yet pushes left centrist and makes fascists—I'm going to use a different word—poop their pants. Also, Eat Fart 69 saying, get out of credit card debt, and I hope you do. Eat Fart 69. I, not that I want you to eat Fart 69. I want you to get out of. Credit card debt. That makes this week's winner, and not just because of their name on Twitter, Roma Flu saying, Find the most effective form of protest, one that doesn't annoy my philosophical kin, yet pushes left-centrists and makes fascists defecate in their pantaloons. Congratulations to you, Roma Flew. Just tell us what piece of This Is how swag you want. From what is available at thisishell.com When you click on support And we will get it in the mail to you Post-haste My answer to this week's question from Hell What have you repeatedly failed to do But keep trying to achieve anyway I mean, This is easy For anyone who listens to the show They know what I keep trying to do But fail at repeatedly Yet keep trying anyway And that is to make enough money Doing This Is Hell To climb out of the massive debt I've accrued from Doing This Is Hell And we hope you can join us this year as, uh, together, we will see if this year is the year it finally happens. That I finally, we finally start making enough of money on the show to actually put us all in some sort of reasonable living. Although I'm not holding my breath, but stay tuned in throughout 2023. Tell your friends, this is hell. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, we only have one of our three guests confirmed for next week, so who will be our guest during the first hour of next week's show?
0: On next week, Brian Meir, editor and contributor to Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South, and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Brian will be on to talk to us about the attack on Brazil's capital last weekend by supporters of... former president Jair Bolsonaro, with the help of Steve Bannon.
1: Yes, yeah, Steve Bannon was heavily involved. He was actually at that protest. I didn't know that. This is a huge deal in Brazil. Steve Bannon is discussed in the Brazilian media on a fairly regular basis wow. because he has such an intense influence over politics there. Again, something that's not being reported here in the United States, that Steve Bannon has taken this far-right wing, in whatever you want to call it, it makes sense. Whatever the videos the world. look
0: just like January 6th. It's the like, exact same thing. It's his little shtick.
1: And I think Bolsonaro left. I think he uh, left to Brazil and he's now in Florida because he was afraid of going to trial.
0: I think I saw last night that he was, like, on life support or something. I don't know. No, oh, really? I hope I'm not just saying mm. some stupid tweet. Like, no, I— <laughs> no. I think that he's maybe sick. I don't know. Uh. He gets COVID all the time, so it makes sense.
1: Mm, it's the only person I don't want to have on life support. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to this week's producers, Sebastian Vupper, Lindsey Gorey, and, of course, Dan Hill. Thanks to Jeff Dorton for another Moment of Truth. Thanks to Renal Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because— talk to you tomorrow on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when i will be looking back at the first week that was of this is hell in 2023 and we will be sharing an interview from a little over uh, a month after the passing of the patriot act on why the patriot act sucked and continues to suck join me members of the this is hell crew and other this is hell listeners for Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, at Cary's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, which has returned to its regular Wednesday evening time beginning around 6 and going until at least 10 p.m. Drop by, join us, and if you do, I will give you a free book. That's This Is How, Office Hours, every Wednesday evening, starting around 6, running until about 10 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid.
2: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh. And my demon tries to knock me down.